And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, both houses of Congress are churning out appropriations bills, believe it or not, plus a business plan for reform of the Small Business Administration. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal hiring managers view sector-wide shakeups in the private sector, especially the tech area, as an opportunity to grab some talent for public service. Agencies are joining forces with state and local governments to pitch that idea of public service careers. Those agencies had a recent tech-to-gov virtual job fair to help get some hires in while interest is high. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with a senior advisor for the Office of Personnel Management's Hiring Experience Group, Kylie Russ. We do know that there are many hires that have happened, including some even at OPM, like HX hired someone from the Tech2Gov event, our director's office just hired somebody from the Tech2Gov event. So we know that these things have happened. We know that GSA, IRS, OPM, VA, like these agencies have all um told us that they have made hires from the event. And we know that one agency alone hired 30. But we will, like I said, try to do a better job of setting up the front end for the future so we can better tell you next time around. Over two thirds of candidates said that they were more excited and interested in a government career than they had been before they attended the event, which is huge. Agencies found it extremely useful to the point where we started getting enough inbound requests for more events, but also other things that we can be doing internally at a more systemic level to smooth the path in for more technologists. And so we are actually standing up an internal to government working group with very broad interagency a representation. I'm happy to kind of go into what that working group is going to do, but that demand for more tech-to-gov was high enough where we decided that that was a worthwhile investment. Really encouraging to hear that that interest group is being stood up and that those smoothings over of the federal hiring process are in the works here. Can you shed a little bit of light on what that working group's going to be uh, tackling? It's kicking off soon. So like how things will develop is a little bit murky, but the plan right now is that we're going to be tackling three broad work streams. The first work stream is going to be a sharing of best practices and producing of best practices. So that might mean that like that could mean things from PD libraries that could mean tackling things in like skills-based hiring. So that's kind of a big bucket for there's so much excitement in this community to, to pitch in and try to help smooth the path for hiring in tech. And so I'm funneling a lot of that energy into some of these projects that cross-government can work on and can benefit from. So that's the big Workstream One bucket. The second one, we're working on a training academy for HR and hiring managers and folks interested in bringing in more technologists. And when I say technologists, I should say I'm like really big tent here. So I'm talking about tech, I'm talking about cyber, uh, I'm talking about AI, data, customer experience. So this group is like kind of looking at things that are tech and tech adjacent. So that middle work stream is about helping HR hiring managers and others kind of learn what are the best practices in actually recruiting this tech talent and bringing them in? So everything from what authorities should we be thinking about to what does your actual pitch look like to candidates? The third category is pooled hiring. So that's like the big thing right now and rightly so. So we're working really closely with the hiring experience group in OPM to both push for OPM to be running some of these pooled hiring actions, but also supporting agencies to run shared hiring amongst themselves with the idea being if one agency is really good at recruiting and selecting for X role and another one is really good at recruiting and selecting for another role, they should both run those independently and then share their lists afterwards with each other so that like we're really like uh, agencies can be leaning into the things that they're the best suited for. So all of those things are really adding up to how can we get more technologists, big tent technologists into government to support some of these really critical roles? Okay, awesome. And just so I'm not misrepresenting that last part, I mean, that sounds very similar to this hiring certs that we were talking about before. They're pretty much one and the same. 
Yeah. So there's just there's basically two types. OPM has special authorities to be able to do these government wide and kind of bring agencies together to agree on this is what the PD should look like. This is what the qualifications are. Agencies can run their own and then share the lists of candidates afterwards. So they're technically different, but they're both getting at the same idea, which is like, let's be moving towards hold hiring government wide. Got it. Okay. Thanks for breaking that down for me. To, I guess, shift a little bit more present day here, Tech2Gov is doing another one of these events. This one's going to be, from what I understand, a regional focus that is going to be yes. targeting the southeast part of the U.S., and that there'll be federal, state, and local agencies represented there. But besides those obvious things, in what ways is this event similar? In what ways is this different from what we've seen in the past already? I would say in many ways it is similar with a few changes, a few like enhancements. So there are three federal agencies participating, IRS, CDC, and USDA. And all of the agencies who are participating in this event went through training with Tech Talent Project to do some practice on actually some of the stuff that I talked about for Workstream 3. So like pitching and, and kind of what is the story that your agency should be telling in order to like appeal to, to these candidates. And so we're hopeful that that will improve everyone's experience. Having agencies gone through some of this really great training that Tech Talent produced specifically for this and then hopefully for going forward, OPM wasn't as heavily involved in this one as we were in the January event. And we will be kind of co-leading the event that we're hosting in October too, date pending. Like, And we will plan to help do some of this training leading up to that event too. Okay, great. Yeah, I know October feels like a very far period away from now, but it'll sneak up on you sooner rather than later, I suppose. I understand that's going to be more of a close to what we saw back in January. It's going to be this bigger type event. It won't be the regional one. What do you guys have planned for that? Is it going to be more of the same? Is it going to be a little bit different? I would say it is largely the same with, we hope, some enhancements. We will have, we hope, with the Tech2Gov internal working group, We hope to have started some of the training for folks who are going to be attending that fair so that they can feel really confident and prepared to talk the talk, make the pitch, and just like generally feel more well-rounded in this space. And so the training should be something that is new leading up to that, that will hopefully make everyone's experience better. We will do more active recruiting because it's planned so much further out than the last one, which was a pretty quick turn. So I think that that will be really helpful. And then we are talking about trying to figure out if there is anything we can do to make some agencies who have direct hire authority to support them in making that like a hiring fair, as opposed to an opportunity fair, which is very much how the January event was structured and will be how the October event will likely be structured for most agencies, but trying to figure out, can we be doing anything to support like event-based hiring and some of the direct hiring at the fair itself? Something we've seen come out of OPM recently is some specialty-focused dashboards to really get the visibility around STEM-specific jobs, cyber-specific jobs. How do you see those dashboards getting people to be aware of these positions and where ultimately they could wind up in a government career. Yeah, I think that these dashboards are very helpful and have the potential to be increasingly helpful to candidates who aren't used to navigating USA jobs. It can be really overwhelming. This is not surprising to anybody. It can be really overwhelming to look at USA jobs and just for like one series, for example, like the 2210 is the tech series for a lot of roles. And to go on USA Jobs and see like many different things that you are expected to search for, filtering out the various types of series can be really overwhelming. And so having these landing pages, we hope, is helpful to actually both sides, like to candidates. Of course, we hope that it's helpful in pulling all of the relevant roles or, or potentially relevant roles into one place. It is also helpful for agencies because it it can help them rethink, like, how should I be titling this job um, so that it is really relevant to people uh, who are looking on this landing page? Um, So pushing pushing agencies to consider um, using parentheticals that are more relevant to the role and 
of course, on the recruiting side. So like, I know our comms team has done a great job of pushing those out. Hey, um, look at like the hundred new roles that were just posted on the on the cyber website or the tech website. And I think that they, they have the potential to be a really good recruiting tool um, as we encourage more agencies to use them. Kylie Russ, Senior Advisor for the Office of Personnel Management's Hiring Experience Group, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a business plan for reform of the Small Business Administration. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Small Business Administration might be a small agency, but it has outsized influence over the economy. The pandemic highlighted shortcomings in the SBA, including constituents' access to credit, customer service, and entrepreneurial development. That's according to a task force convened by the Bipartisan Policy Center, and it has a list of recommendations for reform. Joining me with more, the task force co-chairs, former SBA Associate Administrator in the Office of Capital Access, Anne-Marie Malam. Ms. Malam, good to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. And the former Chief of Staff and Chief Operating Officer of SBA, Pradeep Balur. Mr. Balur, good to have you with us. Likewise, Tom. Thank you for having us. And tell us what it is you were looking at here. SBA had a huge burden during the pandemic, which showed a lot of administrative and oversight and controls weakness. But uh, what were you really looking at here? The Bipartisan Policy Center, Tom, as you mentioned, convened this task force about 18 months ago to understand how best to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of SBA. And the timing was perfect. As you know, SBA was just coming off this massive pandemic assistance, wherein they distributed more than a trillion dollars in loans to small businesses, which served as a lifeline to many of these businesses during the pandemic. So we wanted to understand what went right and what went wrong. On top of that, we spoke to dozens of former administration officials and subject matter experts to understand how can we make SBA better. That was the crux of our project. And is it fair to say one of the things you did not focus on as much was the spending accountability because there's lots of people looking at that already. You were looking at programs themselves, fair to say? We looked at it from the perspective of you know, what exactly needs to be done to increase outreach while managing downside risk. So in terms of the accountability, we looked at it from the perspective of how do you manage risk from that context. All right. What were your top line findings? Some of the things mentioned in the highlights include access to capital. Anne-Marie, tell us more about that one. Well, through the years, not just in the recent pandemic years, through the years, SBA has, like many governmental agencies, has become harder to deal with, more complicated procedurally. Fewer and fewer lenders are participating. Bottom line, small dollar loans are decreasing annually to the point of practically non-existence. And it's very obvious that the SBA really needs to deploy technology and simplify the procedures. Some of the offshoots of the change over the years is that now there are a handful of highly concentrated SBA lenders, and and the SBA has really not significantly looked at those separately. And recently, they made some rules that really opens the door to lenders. Instead of figuring out how to work with the 5,000 lenders in the program that have done such an amazing job through the last 50 years, they have now open the doors to bring in other lenders, I expect will expose the agency to severe risk. So those issues we addressed, and there are really several very, very good uh, recommendations. I think the task force absolutely covered the arena for the SBA, and I really hope that the necessary people will take a look at this report, and we're hoping to get it out. That's the 7A program, which has been central to SBA for really decades, fair to say. Yes, that is the central loan program. It was the beginning. The beauty of the program is Congress in its wisdom back in the Eisenhower years set it up as a program not to compete with private enterprise, but instead to partner with banks. The SBA, as you know, guarantees loans that banks just can't quite make to small businesses that don't have enough collateral, don't have a wealthy uncle to guarantee the loan. So this partnership has worked so well. Really, I mean, our country has been built with small businesses through the years, and yet it's eroded recently 
because it's just gotten so complicated and difficult and they haven't figured out how to really deploy technology. It's got to be deployed. Interesting. And there's also the issue of whether enough people even know about SBA programs, 7A or otherwise, that gets to the issue of marketing, outreach, and that kind of thing. That's right, Tom. In spite of the fact that SBA received massive publicity during the pandemic, most small businesses are not aware of the full breadth of SBA's offerings. So some of our recommendations were more along the lines of How can we make sure that the district offices step out and create an outreach, especially to some of these underserved communities? Also, make sure that the district offices work in conjunction with other federal agencies so as to increase awareness. And lastly, as you know, SBA has a lot of these resource partners, such as small business development centers, women business centers, and so forth. The question was, how can we make sure that these centers provide holistic services so that in addition to some of the things, training and counseling that they do, they can also help some of these small businesses understand how to apply and gain access to credit and so forth. We're speaking with Pradeep Balur. He's former chief of staff and chief operating officer of the Small Business Administration and with Anne-Marie Malam. She's former associate administrator in SBA's Office of Capital Access. They are co-chairs of the Bipartisan Policy Center study of the SBA. And I wanted to ask about the third general area that you spoke about in the report, and that's entrepreneurial development. That word is sort of more in vogue than it was maybe in the Eisenhower era, but certainly I think Republicans and Democrats alike understand the importance of entrepreneurialism to the United States economy and general vibrancy. And let me simplify that term for you, Tom. It's essentially counseling and training services. One of the things we looked at was how do we improve the effectiveness and efficiency of these counseling and training services? As you know, SPA provides counseling and training services to hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs each year through all of these brick and mortar training partners, such as the small business development centers, women's business centers, and so forth. One of the things that we suggested was we need to improve the coordination and standardization across these centers so that they have a standard curriculum. They have a standard way of delivering the curriculum as well as measuring the outcomes of the training programs. We also provide a recommendation whereby we said, SBA has built a very good e-learning platform called Ascent. It's focused on women entrepreneurs. And right now about 150,000 women entrepreneurs come and avail of training and counseling services through the brick and mortar centers. But there are more than 10 million women entrepreneurs. Now with this e-learning platform, they can avail of these services 24 by 7 via online means. So our recommendation was to SBA to expand this Ascent platform to the other demographics so that the e-learning platform can work in conjunction with the brick and mortar centers so that SBA can increase its outreach while improving the standardization across all these different centers. And that gets to the question when you speak of women entrepreneurs of the idea that whether SBA programs, whether for credit or for entrepreneurial training, whatever it might be, are equally accessible by and utilized across all of the different demographics and what they commonly call historically underutilized groups. What did you find there? And do they have work to do there? One of the things about that, Tom, that I'd like to add is one of the things that was clear in the pandemic when the SBA worked more closely with a handful of fintech firms was that the PPP loans, when fintechs were involved, did reach the underserved markets better. The percentages were just higher. Also, we know that in the very smallest of loans, the percentages are are higher of loans that go to African-American-owned companies, women-owned companies, veterans, rural companies. And that's another reason to really put the focus and, and try to figure out how to deploy technology without increasing credit risk to the point of being detrimental to the whole program. Got it. So there's a lot of issues. Then there's administrative burden, which is something the SBA sounds like it needs to reduce, and then greater adoption of technology. What's the reaction been so far on Capitol Hill to this report and from the SBA itself, if they've reacted at all? From the Capitol Hill perspective, Tom, I think both sides 
of the aisle are in agreement. By the way, SPA is the only place, I think, where we see bipartisanship on the Hill. And well, veterans. Sides, and veterans, that's right. <laughs> and both sides are in agreement. As Anne-Marie was alluding to, one of the things that worked well during the pandemic was leveraging digital tools through the fintechs to reach to these underserved populations, such as minorities, women, rural customers, and so forth. But it was a double-edged sword because it increased the risk significantly. So both sides of the aisle and Congress want to leverage the digital tools while managing the downside risk. And we can take numerous lessons from how it was handled during the pandemic. Anne-Marie, final comment? Well, I think one thing I'd like to say is one of the reasons why it was very uh, encouraging and I felt this work of this committee was so important is because the SBA has been so successful, an extremely bipartisan effort through the years and has clearly supported American small businesses in a way that everybody has agreed has been beneficial to our entire economy. So it's worthwhile for us to spend the time to try to help the SBA go forward in the years to come. And the group that was involved with this and all the many people we spoke to, it was an effort worth undertaking. And certainly the recommendations are are well worth anybody's time to take a look at. Anne-Marie Malam is a former associate administrator in the Office of Capital Access of the Small Business Administration. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And Pradeep Balur is former chief of staff and chief operating officer at the SBA. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Tom. Appreciate it. And they are both co-chairs of the Bipartisan Policy Center study of the SBA. We'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, data science drives big changes at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. But first, both houses of Congress are churning out appropriations bills, believe it or not. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. This week, Congress is hard at work on spending bills for 2024. It's the last work week before the August recess, as the fiscal year rushes towards September 30th. Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan joins me with a look ahead. And just because they're cranking out these bills doesn't mean they're going to agree on everything and that we won't avoid the CR. But tell us what is going on this final week before a big recess. Well, both chambers have been working pretty diligently on the spending bills, at least at the committee level in recent weeks, where as of last Friday, we had 10 of the 12 through the House committee and eight of the 12 through the Senate committee. The big thing, though, is the way those two bills or two sets of bills are being written are very different with the House coming in under the non-defense spending cap that they agreed to as part of the debt limit and the Senate adhering to those caps and also saying we're going to tack on about another $13 billion or something like that in emergency funds beyond what we agree to in the caps. Both those dynamics were forecasted even as they were signing that debt limit deal into law, but it's it's a dynamic that's going to persist. You're going to have two very different sets of bills and you're going to have to meet in the middle at some point, both on spending and then on all the riders and other provisions that a Republican House and a Democratic Senate might not necessarily see eye to eye on. Yeah. So that reconciliation is the thing or the lack of it. It's like one group is writing its bills in Farsi and the other is writing it in Hebrew. And somehow they have to mash this together. And so that's what's going to take the time when they and when do they return? They're out for most of August, right? They are out for most of August. We'll come back in September with, you know, a few weeks to spare before September 30th and some sort of progress on spending. Um, September 30th, especially given the dynamic we're seeing here, we're most likely to see a continuing resolution before October 1st, start of the fiscal year. But, you know, they're trying to make progress, as you noted, with two floor votes next week on a couple of the spending bills in the House, trying to get these things moving. Um, Some Senators have said they'd like to see the Senate take up some of these bills when they get back in September as well. So start moving the bills, start getting the process going. Um, but there's a long way to go before we get to any sort of way for an agency to plan what its funding is going to be for the next fiscal year. Yeah. So just to reiterate, basically, the Senate is going with 2024 figures that were agreed to in the debt ceiling right. deal. 
with limits. And the House is saying, yeah, that was great, but let's do 2022 levels instead. Right. On the non-defense side, on the defense side, both chambers are heading towards the same goal. But on the non-defense side, that's where the cuts are coming in. And the bills that the House has been producing out of committee have some pretty significant cuts to them. And in some cases, they're offsetting it by cutting funding from elsewhere, for example, from last year's reconciliation law, taking money away from the IRS that it was given in that law. So they're trying to get those numbers down however they can, both lower programmatic levels and offsetting by cutting funding elsewhere. Right. And on the DOD side, where there's some budget unanimity, the problem is the NDAA, which the Senate is going to finish. And there, there's some big philosophical differences with the NDAA that the House passed, correct? Very, very big differences. Um, This is a piece of legislation that they try to make as bipartisan as possible. And on the Senate side, it was bipartisan coming out of committee and so far a pretty bipartisan process where they're setting up and knocking out some amendments here and there. They did a few last week. They're going to try and do more this week. On the House side, when they passed their bill, it was very much a partisan bill with, you know, kind of a two, I think it was maybe 219 to 210, pretty party line vote with a couple of crosses here and there. And that's because of the adoption of amendments around uh, abortion issues, DEI issues, um, transgender affirming care issues, things that were added to the bill to try to win the support of some of the harder line conservatives in the House. But now you have a bill that Democrats walked away from where, you know, Adam Smith, who's the ranking member on the House Armed Services Committee said, I liked this bill out of committee. We were all ready to stand by it, but we have to withdraw our support. So you're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle between those two bills to get the NDAA through. Even if those top line numbers, which are very important, line up, it's all the details in that 12, you know, easily 1,200, 1,500 page bill by the time they're done with it. Um, they're going to have to reconcile all those along the way. Oh, not like they have a heavy lift or anything ahead of them. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director for Bloomberg Government. And there is some fun stuff happening when they do return. UFOs seem to be hovering over the Congress the last few months. And what are they going to do about them? Well, there's a hearing this week featuring um, somebody who's kind of described as a whistleblower who's worked on the unidentified autonomous phenomena is what they're referred to, UAPs rather than UFOs now. But he's going to go before a subcommittee where the chairman has said that Washington bureaucrats aren't telling us the truth about what's going on with this. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of it in a hearing like this where they're going to hear from folks who have researched these incidents and say they've heard from officials what may have gone on. So it's I think it's going to be a very interesting hearing. Um, there have been fairly serious hearings in recent years over these UAP and hearing from pilots and people in the military about what they've encountered. And so this is the latest of this and the Republican House subcommittee really focusing in on this issue. So we are going to watch this one because I think we could learn something very interesting and, and see what they have to say. Presuming nobody really thinks Area 51 has aliens and jars of formaldehyde and this kind of thing. People are concerned that it might be some technology from an opposing nation like China that we just can't figure out how they can make a plane go sideways or something. Right. I mean, any sort of disadvantage that we would have in in the military sphere because somebody has better technology than us is something that I think is right for the military to to research and right for Congress to kind of plumb that issue. And that's where they are right now with it. Um, I'm not sure if we'll see direct legislation out of anything that's talked about here, but I think people instantly gravitate towards that Area 51 or, you know, scenes from Independence Day where there's, you know, an alien craft somewhere in in the desert. But I do think that that could be some of the questions. Do we have anything like that? I wouldn't be shocked if somebody asked that point blank during the hearing. Yeah, well, my understanding of this dates back to the day the earth stood still but so you can look that one up in the movie database and finally uh secretary mayorkas of homeland security not off the hook at all yet in the house is he no the house talked last week about some of the groundwork they've started laying for a possible impeachment and he is going to go into the house judiciary committee this week for probably another tough grilling he's had several over the course of the last year um, as the department um, you know, deals with the various issues it must confront, including what's going on at the border, fentanyl, and, and many of the other management issues that Republicans have pressed. I'm sure he'll be talking about some of the immigration numbers that show maybe declines of crossing at the border and, and will be presenting his best case as well. Um, but it does seem like he is very much still under the gun. There are still going to be calls for his resignation and possible impeachment at some point. Um, so again, every time he's up there, we're trying to see what they're asking and what they're saying about the department. 
Well, maybe he could bring Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with him, and so that would kind of balance things out on both sides of the aisle there facing him. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, data science drives big changes at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Many agencies tell their employees not to be afraid to ask questions and research the answers. Fewer provide the tools, training, and technology to support that belief. Justin Marsico, the chief data officer at the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service, tells executive editor Jason Miller how a recent pilot program expanded into a full-fledged effort to ensure employees have the necessary skills to ask and answer tough questions. We launched our first cohort of Fiscal Data University in October of 2022, at the beginning of the fiscal year. And we were able to obtain funding to support the acquisition of about 40 licenses for an online data training vendor. And then we held an application process where we invited employees to apply and to tell their story about what they were going to do with this data um, education. And we tried to select our first cohort to make sure we had broad representation from across our business lines. And now this first cohort will be in fiscal data university for the period of a year. So whereas before we were testing it for just a month, now we have a a year-long cohort with 40 employees who are actively learning and and, and working through the content as we're in the middle of the fiscal year now. I definitely want to get into more details about the Fiscal Data University. We'll get there in a sec. Let me just take a half a step back. That data pilot, was there a reason why you thought, let's just do 30 days, let's just see how it works, versus running several pilots? I mean, the government is known for piloting and then piloting and then piloting again sometimes. So it's, it's a little refreshing, to be honest, that you did one, learned from it, and then built from there. But was there any kind of feeling that you didn't learn enough or you didn't learn the right things? How, how did you know you were ready to maybe expand? The big thing that we learned, which wasn't something that we even articulated explicitly in the beginning, we sought out to to learn things like how to technically implement this in the right way, you know, what the best vendor would be. But the major thing that we learned was that people really wanted this to happen. Like there really was demand at the fiscal service. I mean, you could have imagined in December, like we maybe had like six or seven people sign up and then that like dwindled down to three or four by the end of December. But instead it was you know, quite the opposite. We were overwhelmed to receive like almost 100 people who said that they wanted to be a a part of this. And so I would say the major thing that we learned was that there was real demand and cause for us to act and to act quickly. I would say the other thing that we, that the reason why we felt like we didn't need to do multiple pilots was because we got a ton of good information from the people who participated in the um, in the pilot. First of all, we, we were testing three different vendors who were providing online content. So we got all the data that was collected, you know, by the vendors in their admin platform. And then we also did surveys and talked to people to learn what was working, what, what didn't work. And I would say the other thing is that we're not the first ones to come up with this concept. There are you know, some other places where we were able to do our own research about what had worked and what hadn't worked. So we were able to just go right to our our first year-long cohort. Let's maybe talk a little bit about that cohort as well. You mentioned it started in October. Uh, You mentioned that it's a year long. Uh, How many students and and what are they doing during it? How's it split up? Just give me some of those basic details. The number of students that are in the first cohort is a function of the number of licenses that we were able to identify funding for. So we have 40 students participating, although I will say that that actually is a really good number for us in the size of organization that we have. So basically, Fiscal Data University consists of like three main things. It's students who are on their laptops taking data-related courses in some loose curriculum that we've laid out for them. 
number one. Number two is, and this is this is why the 40 people matters. We have recurring check-ins, like office hours style engagements with our office, the office of the chief data officer, which is kind of like sponsoring this whole thing. And those check-ins allow for us to talk with the students, to answer questions, for them to get to know each other and to form a little bit of a, a community. And that's like really where the, the size uh, of this starts to matter. You know, you could scale this to a thousand people, depending on the size of your business. But when you do that, it becomes harder to have smaller breakout groups to have people form relationships with each other, to know where to go to answer questions um, about certain topics. It just becomes harder to manage all that um, with a larger group. So anyway, the second piece of Fiscal Data University that we have right now is a uh, regular check-ins that are scheduled and also ad hoc as people have questions that come up, they can talk to people um, on my team. We, it, as a part of that, we also have some mentoring that's going on between more senior analysts and, and more junior analysts. The final third part of Fiscal Data University is that we ask the participants to go and identify real world analytics use cases that are in their business areas and that need attention. And those are essentially going to become the capstone projects that everybody completes at the end of fiscal data university. So rather than, you know, what you may see if, if like you were to go on independently to a, uh, to go through a data education course and you're given a data set about, you know, whatever star Wars or, you know, sepal length, uh, of flowers and do something with that. We're trying to actually harvest all this energy and learning to solve like real challenges that we have today. So those are the three parts of it, the coursework, the community building and engagement um, with our office, and then the actual projects that people are going to be working on completing. And to be clear, the participants are from across Treasury Department, across Bureau of Fiscal Service, I should say. They're not just uh, SESers, not just GS12s and 15s. They really do run the gamut in, in terms of program missionaries, but, but across all parts of, of, the, of your agency. Is that correct? Yeah, all of our business lines within the fiscal service are represented from the the transactional business lines that process payments to the HR business line. We've also tried to to get a good range of grades. Um, I think that we have people from grade seven to grade 15 who are participating. And really, that was important for us to get a broad cross-section because we are trying to say that data-informed or data-driven decision-making is something that should happen at all parts of our organization. It's not just the job of the chief data officer. It's not just the job of the CFO. It's not just the job of like a 14. We all need to be thinking in that way. And so we wanted to make sure we were getting a good cross-cut agency. It's also part of the understanding that different people bring different things to the discussion and having someone, if you had only 12s and 13s and 14s on the GS, you'd only get kind of a certain view. So by having some people in that mid-career range, the GS 7s and 9s, you, they're bringing up questions or, or concerns or whatever the issue is that maybe others don't see or miss. Uh, is, was that the other part of this objective by having such a broad range? You're also training for the future. It's kind of twofold. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Justin Marsico is the Chief Data Officer at the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Hear the full interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash askthecio. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is about, well, geography, of course, and data, and now it's about artificial intelligence. And for a progress report, we check in with the NGA's Director of Data and Digital Innovation, Mark Munsell. Mr. Munsell, good to have you in studio. Hi, thanks for having me. And you are just a couple of months on the job. So what is your job exactly? So as the Director of Data and Digital Innovation, we are essentially responsible for plans and programs and strategy and the implementation of artificial intelligence in NGA. Okay. Well, artificial intelligence starts with data, and so that seems like a good logical place. Tell us about the artificial intelligence strategy that caused you to be brought in. Yeah, I think you'll see a lot of federal agencies now are deliberately organizing around implementing artificial intelligence. 
And so you set up an organization, kind of like what we did, and then you, of course, have to have a strategy for the agency to implement it. And so we spent about six months writing, putting together a strategy that try to clarify what we're doing and why we're doing it so that all the way from the director down to the employees of the agency have an understanding of how we're employing it, what our mission is with it, and what the future of using AI in the agency is. Because when agencies think about artificial intelligence, I guess you have to start with, why do I want this in the first place? And there are kind of two halves of the way to look at that. One, can it enhance my mission delivery? Or two, can it make my people more efficient or make my processes more efficient and quicker, take away that drudgery? And sometimes those two things kind of cross. So what's the thinking process for deciding where you're going to apply AI? Yeah, for us, the big picture, right, with our agency is all about imagery, mostly, right, and geospatial information. And so we obviously work with thousands and thousands of images a day, and that's ever-increasing. We have new sensors constantly coming on board. Of course, the problem that we have is we don't have more humans to look at and exploit all of those images. So it's a linear problem for us right now that's going to turn exponential. So for us, we have to employ automation to be able to tackle this problem. Artificial intelligence in particular, and it's actually a subdomain, machine learning in the domain of computer vision. You might have heard that term before. This is where we have computers actually, I'll say, emulate, simulate the cognitive recognition of things on an image that a human would. And so by having the computer do this more and more and having the computer do it more and more accurately, we collect more data faster. So this is really an area in which it does increase efficiency of operations and the ability to create the products that you need. But it's really also, I think, a crossover in that it will actually enhance mission delivery of the NGA to your federal and DOD customers. You know, let's be clear. This is all about increasing mission effectiveness, not decreasing the amount of humans that it takes to do this mission. I joke a little bit about it when we're asked by oversight, when we're asked by budgeteers that are essentially looking for efficiencies. This is the great thing about automation. It takes so many people to do it. Yes, very true. And so what's the approach? I mean, I did an interview some time ago, maybe a year or so ago. One of the challenges that NGA had in computer vision is, is that really a actual circle there down on the ground? And if it is a true circle, that is all the points are equidistant from the center point, then it must be man-made. And therefore, what is it? Yeah, so you can imagine, you know, as a national security intelligence community agency, we are very interested in certain objects of interest that we want to track that are maybe indicators or warnings of things the country needs to be aware of. And so what we do is we have humans start the process by labeling images. So we will have a particular object of interest that we want to track, and a human will identify examples of that object. And in sort of modern computer vision technology, it might take thousands, tens of thousands of examples of those objects to train a model. After you've trained a model uh, with a a good algorithm, we then test that model, just like you would any sort of software or any new technology. Test that model against a known set. We kind of judge its quality based on that test, then employ it, put it into operations. And for us, that means we run the models, we run inference on imagery. So we take a certain set of models that are looking for certain kinds of objects over certain targets, run that, and it produces detections. We're talking about, in this case, millions of detections. And we take those detections and then sort of sift, again, another human operation here, where we sort of sift through those detections and find result sets or maybe we write code to find things. And then from those detections, we develop insights and, and write reports. We're speaking with Mark Monsell. He's Director of Data and Digital Innovation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And a lot of agencies dealing with AI talk about the ethics, making sure that outcomes are fair, equitable, and that gets into the type of training data you use. But you're not training with face recognition, so there's different races, different ethnicities and so forth, male, female, whatever. You're looking at things on the ground, you know, seen from space in general. And so what are the types of biases, the types of distortions that can come into AI in this particular domain that you have to worry about? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a great point, Tom, in terms of, you know, this really isn't personal, <laughs> what we're trying to do. You're right. It's from space. It's from low Earth orbit or from a UAS or a UAV. And so for us, it's a little more along the lines of our goal is to increase accuracy of detecting these objects as much as possible. So it's kind of three vectors that we're looking for here. We're looking to improve the positive identification of these objects. We're looking to improve the geolocation of these objects. That's very important. And we're looking to do it faster. So all three of those things, sort of an enduring need, an enduring capability development cycle that we're on to make that better. And so when it comes to things like ethics and when it comes to things like responsible AI, for us, we're trying to make all of that better. And some people have asked, maybe we should pause, or maybe this AI is too powerful, or maybe we aren't um, responsible enough in this effort. I would say we're not there yet. I think the federal government and my agency in particular is trying to make it better, trying to increase the quality, and therefore we would never really consider at this point pausing what we're developing because we're just at the sort of beginning of making this good. And there is a big human capital side to this, a big knowledge base side to this, and artificial intelligence is ultimately about people using it. And so you've launched a certification program, the director has announced, within NGA. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is our effort to ensure that developers of the technology and users of the technology are using the technology responsibly. And for us, it's again, it's not about necessarily like a bias or maybe a personalization problem. For us, it's more about are you using it within the guidelines of the Department of Defense, within the guidelines of that have already been established, the law of armed conflict, do no civilian harm. You know, are we using it in the American values that have been established already by the Department of Defense and the intelligence community to conduct our operations lawfully and ethically? Yes. Yeah, so what are some of the challenges there that might come up in this highly technical use of it? For example, if it identifies, you know, a farm that you wouldn't want to bomb. I mean, yeah. not that the NGA would make that decision, but you've got to feed up the information. This is a farm. This is a factory that might be turning out howitzer shells or something. Yeah. So when we certify developers of the technology, we want to ensure that they're developing it correctly. And we want to ensure that the quality of the AI technology models are validated. And so you would fail certification if you produce poor models that are misidentifying and mischaracterizing our objects of interest. Are there any intellectual property questions or challenges with applying artificial intelligence to imagery data that might have been acquired commercially by NGA? That's a good question for either a contracts lawyer or a intellectual property lawyer. But, but I'll say broadly, the things that we protect are our labels. And we, we consider all the labels that we've created a national asset and that we would sort of not uh, transfer those outside of the government or to other places. But when it comes to using commercial imagery or other forms of imagery, most of our license agreements allow us to run this kind of analytic on that information. Back to the AI assurance and responsible AI question, you know, we have an established framework that the White House, the Department of Defense, and the IC have already established and the guidelines that we follow. And so everything we do conforms to those guidelines. All right. And by the way, how did you personally come to this? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been a technologist almost all my career. Uh, I started with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So, of course, you know, the challenge was to find an agency to work for that had even a more difficult name to pronounce. Right. <laughs> and so I've been doing this for over 30 years and was the chief technology officer for NGA before this job. Have s several assignments uh, of leadership inside the agency, both on technology side as well as the um, analytics side and have started uh, companies, technology companies, and sold them, uh, spent some time outside of working for some of the cloud vendors, and had the opportunity to come back and help NGA in the artificial intelligence area, and I was very happy to come back and, and do that. Yeah, the cloud vendors eat their young. You don't want to work there too long. But I did have one final question, and this is highly technical, but you know, in the 50s and 60s to do aerial imagery, there were super high-resolution photographic cameras with really fine-grained film that were, you know, amazing. I think they're in museums, these cameras. And so you would fly over, and then maybe a month later, 
you'd fly over, oh, there's an extra building there that wasn't there before, or there's a missile silo in Cuba, whatever the case might be. So you could compare two pictures. Now you're getting continuous drones by the petabyte of video and so forth. Is there too much data coming in? And maybe if we went back to a model of, well, a snapshot every two months is good enough, and it's a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, Tom, I think we're together as far as being Luddites, wanting to go back and uh, and, uh, not. (laughs) I still have my Hasselblad. (laughs) You know, is there too much data? You know, guys our age are saying, yeah, man, can you you slow down? We we don't need all this data. Um, Reality is it's not stopping. Right, right. There's there's more and more data. I can look at the number of rockets launched, satellites launched into space from just commercial vendors out there that are doing this. And it's amazing the amount of sensors that are being put up and sort of, you know, en masse to be able to do this. So it's not going to stop. It's probably tenfold over the next decade. And like I said before earlier, the only way to tackle this is to use more automation, right, and, and use um, sort of invention on top of invention. You know, too, let's go back in that time frame you talked about. Artificial intelligence has been around since we've had computers. Computer vision has been around since we've had computers. The reason that we're doing so well with it now is because of the amount of compute that we have, you know, the amount of imagery or or data that we can store, and the fact that we have all this sort of combined abstraction on top of abstraction has led us to the point where some of the models that have been developed over the last four or five years are really, you know, eerily enough are sort of mimicking the way information is stored and retrieved from like a, like a brain. And so, you know, large, large language models, for example, and some of the stuff you've seen in the last year come out of that, it's really been a breakthrough. And you might ask even on that, how does that relate to this computer vision thing, this imagery thing? And I think every company would tell you, OpenAI, Google, uh, Microsoft, would say what we've learned through large language models is now being applied to other modalities, and they'll all sort of talk about multimodal uh, models. So the intersection between text and language and imagery is really a boon for us. And I think you'll see the ability to identify things on images sort of skyrocket in terms of quality over the next couple of years. Mark Montell is Director of Data and Digital Innovation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to its AI strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 